right, every time I go to one of those meetings, I think about the possibilities of our church hosting one here, and uh, it would require a great deal of effort, and uh, my biggest concern is preachers being able to follow instructions, and uh, not making hotel reservations in the wrong place, and taking the subways in the wrong direction and thinking we gave them wrong directions. So pray about that if you would. It really would be a blessing for our church to do something like that. And uh, uh, we would have to really cram in. I mean, the meeting that was we were just at was would actually fill every seat in our auditorium. And uh, so it would uh, really be something to think and to pray about. But let's... Get uh, our Bibles open to uh, Revelation chapter 2. And, and of course, we're not going to spend time going over all of these things again. But uh, tonight, what we're trying to do is paint the bigger picture. We're just picking up the pieces. And one of the problems that we have in understanding prophecy, understanding the things that Jesus has told us is yet to come, is where does the church fit in? Now, last week we talked about the aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the restraining force and how that uh, Paul tells us that that is going to be removed. It would be hard for that to be removed without the church being removed with it, which is one of the reasons we believe in the premillennial pre-tribulational return of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out where the church fits into all this. Now, we start in Revelation chapter 1, as we did over a year ago, and we understand this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is going to do. And it's absolutely interesting that he introduces himself in chapter 1 and then immediately, no break, no pause whatsoever, he writes seven letters to the seven churches. Then we don't hear about the church again until we get the whole way to the end of the book. And... uh, If you are alive today and you want to serve God, you must serve God through a local, independent, Bible-believing, and it ought to have Baptist on the name church. These are, and somebody said, well, you just say that because you're a Baptist. No, I didn't grow up a Baptist. Uh, I I grew up in a non-denominational church. And praise the Lord, the church I grew up in made the same journey I did, though a little different path, uh, and found out that we're not the originators of these things. Studying Baptist history is very interesting. If you pick up one Baptist history book, it'll say, the Baptists traced their roots back to the 1600s in England. Then you pick up another one and it'll say, uh, Conrad Goebel in the 1500s in in, uh, mainland uh, modern-day Germany uh, uh, was the founder of the Baptist movements. And then you read uh, Mr. Ridpath, who is a Methodist historian, and he says there have been 
Baptist sediments down through the ages since the earliest histories we have of the church. It's kind of interesting from a Methodist. And uh, uh, in fact, if I remember his quote completely, he said, uh, the earliest churches could all be classified as Baptist churches because they all baptized believers only by immersion. And uh, of course, that's in the Bible, amen? And so that's one of the reasons we are who we are. That's what our name is about. Open door. Now, it's not open because we just want everybody to come in, though we do. We want people to come in. It's open because of the letter that Jesus wrote to the Philadelphia church saying, I have set before thee an open door. Uh, I understood one thing. 20 years ago when we started our church was that if we were going to if we were going to survive it was going to be Jesus that had to do it and that's where what our name means Jesus has given us in fact we got three doors out front that open and uh, uh, we we praise the Lord for that and people have done an awful lot of damage to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 uh, they've tried to turn it into church ages that the uh, first church, the Ephesus church was the early New Testament church and then the next church was... There's only one problem with that is every commentator who writes about that has different time periods attached to it. If it were really of the Lord, if it were really scriptural there would be a consistency to it that we would be able to see. Since you can't see anything like that, but I'll tell you one thing I can see. Do we have churches that have left their first love like the Ephesus church did? Do we have dead churches like the Sardis church? Do we have lukewarm churches today like the Laodicean church? Uh, Did they have lukewarm churches 500 years ago? Uh, Yeah. You see, Jesus picked seven churches that are characteristic of all churches. And he dealt with their issues so you and I could read those letters and deal with the issues that we face today. And every one of these churches had different things that... They had to deal with two of the seven churches were not condemned. Two of the seven churches were not commended. And uh, we look at these letters to the churches. And I want us to touch on a couple of things here. But we do not see the church again until we get to Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns and the armies of heaven are behind him. We have uh, uh, the verse, verses, uh, let's see here, 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice. This is Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him, the Lamb, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arraigned in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And we come down here to verse 10. 
Well, let's just read 9 and 10. And he said unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, do you get what he says? He said, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, You've got a hard time trying to make this guy into an angel. Because angels are not our fellow servants. They're not our brethren. They're different. Uh, you have a hard time making this connection here. This is someone that God picked and he gave him this job to show these things to John. And when John was so overwhelmed that he just fell down at, it, at the man's feet, he said, wait a minute, you don't worship me. I'm just like you are. I am of your brethren. I have the testimony of Jesus. Now, what organization is given the job of taking the testimony of Jesus to the world in which we live? Church. You you can't find that anywhere else in Scripture. It is our job to take the testimony of Jesus to the world. Amen? Amen. And this is what is going on here. There, um, we go back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 22, and it's interesting some of the things that Jesus just tells his churches here. Revelation 2.22. And this is the church at Thyatira, the church who had Jezebel for a preacher allowed her to come in, and we spent time explaining that Jezebel was not reincarnated queen that was Ahab's wife, but it was the false teaching that claims to be true. How much stuff goes on in the name of Jesus today? I mean, there are churches. In fact, uh, when Sung Young Moon was still alive, one of the last things he did about uh, six, eight years ago was start a campaign where he hired different churches to let him come in and teach. And uh, he would give phenomenal amounts of money. I mean, he would promise the church like $25,000, $30,000 to let him come in and speak. And some of these preachers kind of swallowed the hook. I mean, it would be kind of hard saying uh, no to that kind of donation, you would think. But if it came from Sung Young Moon, I don't think it'd be that hard. Uh, I really don't. Uh, I don't care what, it, what uh, if Sung Young Moon's attached to it, let's uh, pick it up by the seat of the pants and pitch it into the street. Amen? And uh, we've almost done that on a few occasions, but uh, they decided the better of it and left under their own power. Uh, but what he was trying to do was to hire legitimate churches to peddle his garbage. You see, it gives him legitimacy 
to speak in a real church pulpit. That's Jezebel. We have all kinds of Jezebels today. Now, look what Jesus says to this false teaching going on in his church. Verse, let's just get the whole thing. Verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, I, I got to stop here. Let me just name you a few Jezebels. How about promise keepers? How about Billy Graham? How about uh, because they bring in... Billy Graham got people to accept the Catholic Church as the true church. That's Jezebel. Promise keepers got people to accept the charismatic church as a real church. This is Jezebel. When you call all the churches together. Now we have churches that advertise in the yellow pages. We have no doctrine. That's like we have a car lot, but we don't sell cars. I mean, what is the church about, my friend? Somebody was talking to me. Well, we all believe the same thing. But I said, do you realize that just... Uh, 300 years ago, they were fighting wars between different churches. There was enough difference in these groups that 500 years ago, they were fighting each other, major, raising armies and sending them out and slaughtering tens of thousands of people on the battlefield because of the differences that today we say, well, we're just going to maximize the, the, the we're going to, uh, what is it? We're going to major on the major things and minimize the minor things. You know what their definition of minor things are? The word of God, baptism, the authority of the local church. Those aren't minor things, my friend. Now, look what Jesus says he's going to do here. When he talks about committing fornication, he's not talking necessarily about physical adultery, though you follow the history of these churches, you're going to find a lot of physical adultery going on in them. It's the spiritual adultery, eat things sacrificed to idols. That is, when you ate at the table of the idol, what you were doing was you were participating in the worship. This is why Paul said, listen, the idols of the world are nothing. But when you sit down at the table, knowing it's sacrificed to an idol, you're sitting at the table of the devil. Have, no Christian has a business being there. When you sit down at the table with false teachers of false doctrine, you're giving credence to what they believe and teach. Jesus got upset about that. You know what? It wouldn't hurt us to get upset about the things Jesus gets upset about. In fact, look how upset he got in the next verse. This is where we're going. It says, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, 
And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts and will give unto every one of you according to his works. But I say unto you, but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Now, Jesus makes an interesting separation here. This Jezebel was teaching in the church as if she were a part of the church. The church at Thyatira had accepted false teachers into their midst as if they were members of the church. In fact, in time past, there has been a big issue in certain churches and even in some Baptists who just ignore the word of God that people could be admitted to church membership that weren't saved. Now, I don't know how you do that, but study the... Well, don't study the Wesley Brothers, but the Wesley Brothers' ministry was to bring the message of salvation to the Episcopal or the Church of England. Now, does that not give you a testimony that the Church of England could not possibly be Jesus' church? Because you can't be part of Jesus unless you're saved first. You can't be a part of a church unless you're saved first. And there were even some Baptists down through the ages that said, well, that's not so important. Well, we're glad about one thing. You know, Baptist, nobody owns the phrase. And just because somebody else messes up doesn't mean we have to. Amen? There's no controlling entity. But Jesus makes a separation here. He says, I'm going to take these people teaching false doctrine and seducing my servants, those that are truly saved, to participate in this false worship. I'm going to take her and her children the people that really believe this stuff, and I'm going to cast them into great tribulation. He says, but the rest of the church, you're not going into great tribulation. Now, what do you do with this? Well, I'll tell you what you do with this. It's called a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Because Jesus said, I judge the reins. That's your mind. That's your thought process. I judge the heart. And I'm going to give unto everyone according to their deeds. When you choose to believe in falsehood. Now, the church's job is to make someone who believes in false doctrine, as miserable as we can possibly make them. Amen. Uh, I've had people over the years say, Pastor, I just, I'm just uncomfortable with that invitation thing. And, and I say, well, I, I don't want to be rude here, but uh, we want you to be uncomfortable. Uh, we, we want you not to be satisfied with your relationship with God. If there's a problem there, we want you to get it fixed. Amen? And Jesus comes here in this letter to this church and he says, you got people in there teaching that 
It really doesn't matter what you believe about God as long as you call him God. It's okay. You know, the Indians were really saved because they believed in the great spirit. Talking about the woo-woo-woo American Indians. Um, In fact, somebody wrote a book several years ago about Christopher Columbus being a great servant of Almighty God and claiming the West for God. Now, anybody that would make that statement, I mean, I, I would... I give you two choices. One is you are so woefully ignorant that you have no business writing a book. And the other is you're ignorant on purpose, and that's called a liar. Christopher Columbus staked out these lands for the Roman Catholic Church, the king and queen of Spain, and the domination of the Pope. That's what Christopher Columbus was not a great Christian. He was an ambitious man who discovered the new world and thought to gain to himself great riches and importance, of which he got a little bit. But you know, God has a way of short-circuiting your seeking for yourself aggrandizement. Amen. And so he makes this promise, and I know we've chased some rabbits here, but he tells this church, I'm separating you. I'm taking the people that are in this church that are truly saved, and they're going one direction. And the fact that you've allowed these people who are unsaved in your church to teach false doctrine... I'm going to make that line of demarcation. I'm drawing the line and these that are on this side are going into great tribulation. Now, great tribulation is only used of the time of God's tribulation on this earth. Now, some uh, some people have tried to take this fact that Jesus said, listen, you're going to have tribulation. That's not what he's talking about here. You will suffer for the cause of Christ. You you will endure hardness for the cause of Christ. But the Antichrist has power to wear out the saints of God. That's not the church. The church will not endure that type of tribulation. It cannot. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates, the authority, the government of hell shall not prevail against it. And so as we look at this, look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He's talking to the Philadelphia church here. It says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Does that sound like a promise of the rapture to you? Joe and I the only ones that see that? Jesus says, listen, Philadelphia church, it's not because of your strength. It's because of my strength. But you've kept my word. And I'm going to keep you from that hour of temptation that is going to try 
the entire world. Next phrase is, Behold, I come quickly. We go right back to Jesus' command. How are we supposed to behave till he comes? Watch. We're supposed to be ready. Because we do not know when he is coming. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And again, the book of Thessalonians was written to a church. And this church was a church that studied the word of God. And therefore, their, their difficulties and their struggles were a little deeper than some of the other churches. In fact, it took a forged letter in Paul's name to really mess things up there. And this is Paul's first letter here. And uh, uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which hath delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, some people will say, yes, he's delivered us from the wrath of hell. But this letter was written to a church. He has protected us from this hour of temptation. We are not the seed of Jezebel. We are members of the church of Jesus Christ. He is going to come back. He is going to take us out and he is going to protect us from that hour which comes. The context of the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. And we can come down to chapter 5. We'll just skip over some things here. And if you would have time to read the entire uh, book of Thessalonians, the story uh, of the rapture, the promise, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. We've been over this passage. is in chapter 4. In chapter 5, it says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For ye, know your, for ye for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Look down to... Um, Verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus. And starting right there through the end of the book, he gives explanation of what it means to be blameless. That's why it says pray without ceasing. Does that mean you should be on your knees 24 hours a day? No. But it means you should pray every day. It means your existence ought to depend on prayer. It tells us to rejoice evermore. You know, we could use a little more joy. Amen? Stop and thank God. That's why we do this on Sunday nights. We, we give our testimonies because we want to be reminded what God is doing. Quench not the Spirit. Now, how do you quench the Spirit? Very easy. You stop paying attention to the Word. Because the Spirit is not going to give you premonitions. The Spirit is going to explain the Word. 
The Spirit is not going to make you. I met a guy one time, just tell you the funny story here. He said, yeah, I was driving home the other day and God said, go buy a bag of groceries. So I went and bought a bag of groceries. And then he said, make a right turn and a left turn and turn here and pull in this driveway and give them the groceries. He said, and I knocked on the door and I said, God told me to give you groceries. And the lady that answered the door said, oh, we've been praying for groceries. You see, God spoke through me. Now, what did that story? This was almost a direct quote of his story. Now, what does that story do? It makes me think he has some special connection to God. That's why I know it's not biblical. Because if it were really God, he wouldn't be telling the story to draw attention to himself. That is the root of every false prophet that has ever lived. Is they draw attention to themselves. If God is working, guess who gets the attention? God does. And if God doesn't get the attention, then you know that Frederick K. Price is not telling you the truth. Does anybody even know who that guy is? Good. I heard him one time on television. Well, first time I prayed for a new Cadillac, God didn't hear me, so I shouted a little bit. Then he gave me one. I'm sitting here going, if one of my children treated me like that, there would be some very serious ramifications in my household. Emphasis on the first syllable. Amen? I mean, I wouldn't want my child coming to me. Dad, you didn't hear me. I want... Whoa. That wouldn't happen. The Bible teaches me that I ought not happen in my house. And so why should a preacher say that you treat God that way? That's blasphemy. You see, we need to behave like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Then we'll be ready when he comes. Amen? Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're three quarters of the way through our time and halfway through our outline. little book of Titus. Let's start in verse 11. That's actually a typo. That should be Titus 2. Verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our hope, is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way one preacher put it. He said, I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. Amen. He said, I'm looking to get out of here. And this is our hope. First Corinthians chapter three. Now, one of the things that we're trying to do is we are trying to be consistent 
with all Scripture in our understanding. Now, before we finish that statement, I want you to understand nobody has all the answers for what is going to happen in the future. We don't pretend that. But what we are trying to do is fit the pieces together. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we have what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. This is where Jesus judges his servants. And Paul explains how this is going to happen. In verse 10, or verse 9, we, we know this verse. We sing it in Sunday school. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ upon this rock. I will build my church. That's Jesus speaking. He is the chief cornerstone. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? And it goes on. God pronounces his judgment upon those who defile his temple. He's going to take your life and expose it to the blowtorch of God's holiness. Now, you know what happens to gold and silver and precious things? Oftentimes, diamonds and, will be found in a lump of coal. You've got to clean that diamond. Gold has to be melted out of the ore. Silver is the same. God is going to try your works. What is done through the influence, the power, and the supply of God? Gold, silver, precious stones. What is done through human effort and human ability is wood, hay, and stubble. Now, let me tell you something. How many of you have ever seen one of those, I, I don't know what they call it, but in the Philippines they take straw, rice straw, and they glue it together and they make beautiful pictures out of it. Anybody else ever seen that? How many of you have ever seen a finely finished wood piece of furniture? I mean, beautiful stuff but it won't abide the fire. Now, God is going to judge every Christian. This is talking to the church. The foundation is Christ. We are to be careful how we build upon. Paul is saying, I am, am the master builder as an apostle, and you take my foundation, which is the word of God, which is the life of the apostle Paul, his example, 
And we try to emulate that. Amen? Now, none of us will do what Paul did. But we'd better do what God wants us to do with our lives. Amen? Now, here's a question. Where does this happen? Go through the book of Revelation. There's nothing in the book of Revelation that deals or gives us a time frame for this except for one thing. It's got to happen somewhere between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19 because Revelation chapter 19, the bride has made herself ready and she is adorned in the righteousness of the saints which are the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. Amen? So somewhere that's got to happen. Somebody said, well, I believe it happens immediately after the rapture during the tribulation period. I'd say that is the simplest definition and understanding that we can come up with. And so we understand that what we read in 1 Corinthians 3 is not what we're reading in Revelation chapter 20. Those are two entirely different things. In fact, there's a reference to the tribulation saints being given rewards and judgment and dominion in Revelation chapter 19, uh, or Revelation chapter 20, before the millennial kingdom begins. And so God is going to deal with the millennial saints, I mean the tribulation saints, before the millennium begins. Where is he going to deal with the church? We say, certainly before Revelation 19, the end of the tribulation period, because the saints are following Christ in linen, fine and, in fine linen, white and clean, which is the righteousness of the saints. We do not see the church during the tribulation period. That's Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. Why don't we see the church? Well, the focus is now Israel. Where do these 144,000 men, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, come from? I can't answer that question. The genealogical records were destroyed in 70 AD. And so, you know what most people do with this passage? Well, it's a spiritual Israel. Spiritual nothing. It gives the names of the tribes. That's not spiritual. That's real. Uh, God knows who came from where. And he's going to take care of that thing. And Ezekiel, we believe that if you start changing these things and muddling them together, you're going to mess up an awful lot of scripture. Don't separate things God puts together, but don't put together things God separates. Amen? God keeps Israel separate. In fact, when a, in a, let's go to, um, we'll just cover, these two are very, sa- uh, very similar, but the issue, we'll, we'll cover a lot of these prophecies, Lord willing, next Thursday night about Israel because that's the topic next Thursday night is Israel in prophecy. And we will see some differences. 
But today, if a Jewish person gets saved, how do they get saved? Uh, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Where should a Jewish person serve Jesus today? Through the local church. Now, God does some special things in the tribulation with Israel. Uh, maybe the church won't be here. So it's understanding that God has promised this physical seed of Abraham special things. Now, if, you're, if you've been astute in our reading, you'll notice in Revelation chapter 1, John says, Thou hast made us kings and priests. Then he talks about Israel going through the tribulation priest, uh, uh, period, given the same thing. And so some people like to sit there and confuse it. But wait a minute. It's a big world in which we live. Amen. He told the apostles they were going to sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel in his kingdom. Right? And so what we have to understand is that God makes some differences in different time periods. This is what we call a dispensational approach. And No, we don't believe everything the dispensationalists believe. In fact, there's just some things we don't know. And we'll have to leave that up to the Lord rather than trying to explain it. That's where the Calvinists mess up. That's where most people mess up in the Bible. But let's just look at one more separation. Go with me to Revelation chapter 6. And we're going to just run this through the Scriptures. I read in a commentary that the the church would naturally want to separate itself from the tribulation saints. And I'm sitting there going, where'd that come from? It's not the church that separates itself from anything. It's the church that serves Jesus Christ. It's his body. Amen. But it is Jesus that makes a difference between the church, between Israel, and between the tribulation saints. He sets them in a separate category. Does that mean that they will enjoy less or more or different blessings of God? No. But what it does mean is that God is working His way, His will, and some of it is just a little bit above our understanding. Amen? But we cannot deny the separation. Look at it here. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until their fellow servants and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. He's got this group of servants of Jesus Christ that were murdered for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. And he says, you're just going to have to wait 
until we get the group complete. I call that a separation. Amen. And let's go down to Revelation chapter 7, verse 13. Now, this is talking about the 144,000. And then in verse 9, we have the great multitude, which no man could number. Verse 13 says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on a throne shall dwell among them. And it goes on to give the promises that are given to these tribulation saints. And we get down to 20, Revelation 20 and verse 4. And it talks about the blessings and the dominion that is given. I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the last of the first resurrection. That's what the next verse will tell us. These are the last souls that are resurrected unto life. The next resurrection is going to be a resurrection unto death. And that is the end of Revelation chapter 20. So as we look and we follow the church, we have seven letters to seven churches. We have promises that I'm going to take those in the church that aren't truly saved, that are teaching false doctrine, they're going into great tribulation. I'm casting them there. But the rest of the church isn't going there. I'm going to keep my church from the wrath to come. The blessed hope of the believer in Jesus Christ is his imminent return. We don't know when he's coming back. But that is our hope. Amen. The judgment seat of Christ is for the church. Oh, yes, Old Testament saints will be judged. Everybody will. But Old Testament saints have not built upon the foundation which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Because they didn't understand about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ hadn't happened yet. Are we still together? And so, we have the refocus on Israel. God regathering His people. And when it's all said and done, we're all going to be together serving Him during the Millennial Kingdom. But different people are going to have different jobs. Some people have the same jobs. Uh, we'll let God take care of that. Amen? I, I believe Ezekiel's temple is going to be during the millennial kingdom on earth. And it will be the sons of Zadok that serve in that temple. There is a separation you cannot deny it. Jesus addresses the tribulation saints as their own specific group. 
Now, how does that all play in? Well, it just means that they're not part of the church. And though some of the tribulation saints will be part of restored and regathered Israel, there's this innumerable multitude of all peoples and all tongues. They're not going to be part of the church because the church isn't there to be a part of. Are they going to be saved? Absolutely. How do they get saved? Same way you did. Grace through faith. Amen? How did Abraham get saved? Grace through faith. How did Adam get saved? Grace through faith. There's only one way to get saved in the Bible. Saving faith produces living works in response to the known word of God. But God does not hold you accountable for that which you cannot know because it hasn't happened yet. He will hold you accountable for that that you could know but don't. There's a difference. Do we got it? I'm still a little jet lag here, so if things I want to make sure that we make that definition there. A person living today is going to be held accountable for the blood of Jesus Christ, whether they accept it or reject it. Abraham was told to search for a city that he didn't know where it was. Whose builder and maker was God. Noah was told to build an ark. Moses was told to build a tabernacle and officiate and initiate the priesthood and all of the ceremonies as outlined in the Old Testament law. Adam and Eve were told to keep and dress a garden and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Say, well, why couldn't it be so simple like Adam and Eve? Well, the answer is actually very simple. God will prove by the end of the millennial kingdom when mankind again rebels, no matter what the circumstance, no matter the amount of revelation, no matter how much God is real to you, The heart of man, when given an opportunity, will rebel against God. It is God's goodness that conquers our sin. That is the message of the Bible. That's what Jesus said when he gives the kingdom to the Father, that God may be all in all. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. We ask that you would help us to be encouraged in these things and understand your word. Lord, that we would prepare ourselves for the judgment seat of Christ. That we would not try to understand things that we cannot understand, but we would give you the ability to teach us what you want us to learn. And Lord, that we would hold tightly to the blessed hope the soon return of our Lord, that we may serve you faithfully till you come. Help us to watch. In your name we pray. And before we finish that prayer,